listening to highlights from One Planet podcast interview with Peter Singer, professor of bioethics, philosopher, and founder of the nonprofit The Life You Can Save. I hadn't really thought about their lives as being full of suffering. I thought of their lives as being good lives until, of course, they got killed. But when I queried Richard about that, he said, no, increasingly they've been taken off the fields and they're crowded inside big sheds. And essentially, whatever makes it more profitable to rear them will be done to them. And, and their welfare barely counts. So he then he mentioned a book by Ruth Harrison called Animal Machines, which was the only book on the subject of factory farming then. And I got hold of that and I talked more to Richard and to a couple of his friends who thought like him. I decided that they were right. It wasn't justifiable to treat animals the way they were being treated to turn them into meat. So that's what led me to change my diet. And to over a period of years, I didn't immediately start writing about this, but gradually I thought, this is something I need to write about. This is a, a really big and important issue involving a huge number of animals. And nobody's really talking about it, or nobody's talking about it as a serious moral issue. People were only talking about it in a rather sentimental way. And most of the concerns about animal welfare at that time were about the welfare of dogs and cats and horses, but not about the welfare of chickens or pigs or cows. Very often you read stories of small children who at some point make the connection between the meat that's on their plate and an animal like the kinds of animals that they may have as, as soft toys. You know, they may have a, a lamb or, or even a cow or a pig, or they have storybooks about them or about chickens. And at some point, they make the connection that these things that you know, they may cuddle or that they are taught to think of in, in positive ways in the storybooks are actually being killed and they're eating them. And, and some children do rebel a little bit at that point. But most of them have parents who essentially, as you just said, indoctrinated them into thinking, no, no, you have to eat this if you want to grow up big and strong. I think it is a hardening process. And you know, no doubt when people needed to hunt and kill animals or, or farm and kill animals in order to feed themselves, that was a necessary hardening process if, if you were going to survive. But today it's, it's absolutely unnecessary and, and therefore it's uh, a bad thing, an avoidable bad thing. I think I think that's increasingly being pointed out now. The, the Lancet ran that series of articles on the, the Eat Commission about meat and individual health in the way you mentioned, and also, of course, the health of our planet, and pointed out that really a diet with, with no red meat and with very little, with much less meat altogether, was a healthier diet both individually and for the planet. Yeah, I would like to see philosophy taught as being essentially about how we ought to live, about what it is to live a good life and why we, why we should lead that kind of life. To me, that's the central questions. It was for Socrates in ancient Athens. And he said, you know, we're talking about how we are to live. And he said an unexamined life is not worth living. So I think we should think of philosophy as encouraging students, young people to examine their lives and to think about how they want to live. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is part of the effective altruism movement, which I played some role in starting, but it owes a lot to 
much younger people like uh, Toby Ord and Will McCaskill at Oxford, who have, have really argued that living altruistically ought to be a part of our life, not the whole of our life. We don't expect people to be saints, but thinking about making the world a better place is should be one of one of our objectives for everybody. And insofar as we do try to make the world a better place, we should use the resources that we can spare for that, whether that's putting time into it or putting our skills into it or donating money. We should use those resources as effectively as possible to get the most amount of good out of them. Just as when we buy consumer goods, we want to get the best value for the money we spend. So we should try to get the best value for what we're doing for the world. So I think there is a real question about how you compare those two things. So again, within the field of animal charities, you can go to an organization called Animal Charity Evaluators. They have a website and they will recommend the organizations that they think do the most good. They're pr pr predominantly organizations that are trying to do something about factory farming. They're, they're not focused on helping dogs and cats because there's already much more money going into helping dogs and cats than there is going into factory farming. Although the numbers of animals in factory farms is, you know, maybe, maybe a, a thousand times greater than the number of animals uh, in need, the number of dogs and cats who are actually in need of, of some help or assistance. So the, the difficult question I say is not deciding, you know, which is the best organization helping people in poverty and which is the best organization helping animals, but how much do I give to concerns about animals or, you know, take another issue like climate change perhaps, and how much do I give to helping people in extreme poverty? And those comparisons are very difficult to make. And I, I, I just go on, on hunches there. I divide my, my giving particularly between charities working for animals and charities working for people in extreme poverty. Well, we can get cameras into these places. There are some very brave people who've gone working undercover with, with hidden cameras. And you, know, you can certainly go to websites like People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals and many other websites that will show you video taken by these brave undercover animal activists. But of course, people don't want to do that in a way. You know, they, don't, they know that they're going to see something unpleasant that they won't like. They know also maybe that it's going to disturb you know, their, their enjoyment of, of meat when they eat it, if they are still meat eaters. So they try and avoid it. And the, the, the difficult question, I think, is, is how you get people to think about this and to be aware of it and not just to say, oh, no, I don't want to know about that and to ignore it and go on with their life, which is actually supporting it. Obviously, people who regularly buy meat are complicit in these practices because that's all the support the meat industry needs is for people to buy their products. No, I certainly didn't become a vegan immediately. I, and in fact, I didn't even become a vegetarian immediately. I, the first thing that I did was to stop buying factory farm products. And then when I got used to that after well, only maybe a week or two or at most a month, I thought, well, <clears throat> I'm not sure how these other animals that are not factory farmed were really treated, but I don't need to eat them. I'm, I was you know, enjoying the other new dishes that I was eating. So I did then become a vegetarian, but the path to being a vegan took many years. And you know, I'm, I'm still not uh, 
100% vegan because I'm concerned about the consequences of what I'm eating. And if there's you know, a small amount of skim milk powder in a product or something like that, I'm not really that concerned about about that. It's not, it's not like a religion for me that I have to avoid all animal products. It's a matter of saying, am I supporting in any significant way the industries that exploit these animals? I'm a bit encouraged by the events. In fact, I'm quite a lot encouraged by the events of the past year. I mean, the, the, the years of the Trump presidency were incredibly discouraging and dispiriting. And it seemed obvious then that we were not going to make decisions quickly enough. But, but Biden has, is acting much more seriously about climate change than we, other leaders had done. And I'm hopeful that maybe we, the pace will quicken now. But still, there is a question about whether democracies will be ready to do this. But to those who say, well, <clears throat> democracy can't do this, so we need something else, I would say, well, how do you know that the something else you get will actually be good on climate change? Because if we abandon democracy, we may lose control over what kind of government we have. We then maybe have the government of those who can have the most, the strongest military behind them. And there's no guarantee that they are going to think in a sound way about preventing climate change. So <clears throat> I'm still a Democrat, despite the fact that I lament the, the difficulties of getting strong action for the long-term future in a democratic system. Well, certainly we've made rapid technological progress. This has been one of the great things that has given me some hope that uh, the technology for producing clean energy has advanced so rapidly. And again, I think we can, we can at least in part thank China for that, although of course a lot of other research went into it. But you know, this means now that I, I don't think anybody, you know, purely for economic reasons, I don't think people would really start a new coal power plant because uh, we now have the technology to produce the electricity more cheaply uh, in clean ways. So that's a big breakthrough. And we're starting to see a lot more electric cars. And as you know, a lot of countries and some major car companies have said, I think Volkswagen was one of them, wasn't it? That it would go completely electric. I don't remember the, the date, but I think those are really important changes. The problems that remain, perhaps the biggest problem that remains is what we were talking about before, and that's meat, uh, particularly red meat, because we really need to get people away from red meat if we're going to achieve global net zero emissions by 2050 even, let alone in a decade. Uh, and if meat consumption just keeps going up without any changes in the emissions per, per cow, let's say, we're not going to get there. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.